Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, a Shelf Isolation Special. I'm Daisy Buchanan, the author of The Sisterhood and the upcoming novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. This week our guest is the editor and memoirist Govandra Hodge. Her debut, The Consequences of Love, was heralded as one of the most anticipated books of the summer. I read it in one long, frantic, breathless gulp. It's the story of the tragic death of Govandra's sister Candy and her father's resulting relapse into heroin addiction. It's quietly devastating, lyrical, heartbreaking, glamorous and squalid. It's also an extraordinarily powerful meditation on memory, family and the question of who our past belongs to. Govandra talked about the books that transport us to sunnier places, feasts in literature, angel delight and why she got told off for what she said about the Pope. First, I have to tell you just how moved I was. I was going to say how much I enjoyed The Consequences of Love. That's not quite the right word because it's just it's so powerful it will stay with me forever and what I keep telling everyone is you know the story that you're telling is so extraordinary but the way that you tell it and the beauty of the writing is the most extraordinary thing of all so I hope you're very very proud and it's just such a and how do you feel having that out there because it's just so intimate It's quite weird. And um, I mean, when I wrote it, I definitely wrote thinking, I'm just going to write pretending that no one's ever going to read this. I'm just going to write how I feel and how I want to write. Um, And I was quite nervous about publication um, the whole way through. Uh, So nervous, in fact, that I started a master's degree so that I would be doing something else at the same time. So I wouldn't have to sort of think about it too much. And I am still doing the master's degree, which is quite stressful in lockdown. But I think lockdown weirdly has put a sort of a gap between me and the book and people reading the book and the understanding that the book is out there, which feels because I'm actually quite, you know, an introverted private person. So it does feel a bit kind of overwhelming. But I think this space feels kind of safe in a way. And the way that people are interacting with me is really nice because people are sending me messages on Instagram and a lot of them, they're sort of detailing things that touch them in the book and that intersect with their own lives. And, you know, you can imagine if that was at a book signing and someone telling you that you wouldn't know how to respond because it's quite a lot to take on. Um, But the nice thing is I can read these messages, let them sink in and respond to them in a way that I think is appropriate rather than just being a bit kind of like, gosh, someone's just told me something really serious and important and personal and I've got to respond appropriately kind of thing. Um, I guess the thing is your readers know you know what they're holding space for and they can read it at their pace and also they mm. know that there's you know it's not as you know as raw as it feels it's not so raw that you haven't had an editor and you know you're in charge of how you tell the story and then for someone to suddenly put something you know quite heavy and quite unfiltered that's a very difficult Mm. thing to take on board I imagine yeah and and I can you know and I know that that's what is happening and that's what will happen, um, but to, in this initial stage, it's quite nice for that to be kind of filtered via social media, so I can respond you know and get used to it and get used to the words I'm going to say and how I'm going to feel when this happens because I think the other thing that I'm aware of is that this becomes compartmentalised in my head as a story and it's not me, do you know what I mean? It gets sort of taken out of you and put somewhere else and it's really important to remember that these things happen to me, that these are my people and this is my story and it's not just a a thing in a book or, you know, a 
a thing between two covers. And I think holding on to that and holding on to feeling emotional about it at the same time as being able to talk about it is kind of a difficult and delicate balance. You know, you don't want to just kind of switch on your patter, but you don't want to burst into tears every time you talk about it as well. So it's a kind of, it's, it's kind of trying to work out how to communicate about it, I guess. That makes a lot of sense to be real, um, but also mm. to do it in a way that's, I suppose, kind of safe, I guess. Yeah, 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 exactly. Are there any memoirs that you've read over the years that have inspired you in terms of the way people have told their stories or the the style or the structure? Yes. So the two memoirs that I pulled out for myself to talk to you about are uh, Speak Memory by Vladimir Nabokov, which is an amazing... And what he does, which really inspired me, because I think my difficulty with writing about my life was that there were so many things that happened. It wasn't just sort of, it's not just a story about uh, a sister dying. It's not just a story. It's also a story about growing up with addict parents. It's also a story about a relationship with the father. And I, and that one of my struggles was working out how to tell that story. And what Nabokov does is he has a, it's like a series of vignettes. It's like a series of short stories, the way he does it. Um, and they're all kind of beautiful and perfect and they kind of exist in and of themselves. And so sort of beyond his wonderful writing and his kind of his evocation of time, and also he, he investigates the idea of memory and writing and what you do with a memory and a, a thing that happens to you once you start writing about it, how you change it, how it turns into something different. And he writes brilliantly about that. But also the way he structured it as a series of vignettes, I found, I thought, gosh, that's how I could do it. I could write this almost as a series of short stories because that felt like it fitted with how my life had gone. Like it felt like one thing happened and then another thing happened and then another thing happened rather than a sort of a narrative arc. And then the other one that I've always really loved and one of the questions that you ask is what book do you give? And I often give Jigsaw by Sybil Bedford, which is a wonderful um, memoir about her childhood, which was similarly sort of chaotic and strange, but in very different ways. So she was a, um, her father raised her in this sort of German aristocratic schloss, but in sort of great uh, penury they had no money because he spent all his money on antiques and then they moved down to the south she moved to the south of France with her mother and her mother was this very sort of flighty glamorous character so she's sort of bringing herself up trying to work out who she is in this crazy changeable chaotic world where her mother has an affair with a young man and 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 it's and again it's really beautifully written and it's a beautiful evocation of place and trying as a young person to find your stillness in the chaos of your outer world I guess. So those were two, those are two memoirs I really love. I've read neither of them and they sound fantastic, especially the, the Sybil Bedford. That sounds yeah. Yeah. Sybil, I mean, compelling. It is wonderful. It's really, and she, she was, um, she was quite old when she died. She was like 94, she lived in Chelsea, but she had this, one well, of those amazing sort of peripatetic lives that, so she was in Germany, she was in the South of France, she was in Chelsea and and lived in Rome and went to Mexico. And she had, and she always writes about herself and her experiences as a sort of, a woman, a single woman, but just adventuring the world and also being quite uncompromising that life is about reading and writing and experiencing. There's always lots of amazing food and wine and sitting on terraces in the sunshine. So quite a good book to read at the moment when we're, you know, <laughs> maybe dreaming of those things. Oh, I crave that. I love a good book where, uh, and it's terrible because as soon as someone mentions, you know, being outside with a nice glass of cold white wine, I'm sort of I can't yeah, exactly. resist. <laughs> That's where I want to be. I just want to be there immediately. So yes, yeah, so she's always she has this amazing uh, flat in Rome, which is a later book actually. But she has this amazing terrace, and she sort of just sits up there, sort of drinking wine and looking at the view most of the time, which I'm incredibly jealous of right now. I'm really intrigued as well by something that I took from your book. I don't know if you feel this way or not, but the sense of being around adults who are very, very anxious to keep up appearances, be it mm. having the mature grown-up people in your life you know be sort of dissembling to everyone and I think that for children truth is so so important and it's so sort of black and white and to have someone that you love and trust subvert that from an early age I think that's a really yeah. damaging thing but also a very interesting subject to explore. Well it was weird because my mum and dad are so different they're like kind of two sides of the kind of polar opposite so my dad 
told stories, told lies. And, you know, his, his grasp on truth was very shaky, but he never felt that he had to lie about what he did or his behavior at all. He was never ashamed. He was never embarrassed. Whereas my mother, um, always tells the truth. I don't think she knows, you know, she doesn't know how to lie. She doesn't know how to dissemble at all, but she felt very afraid when I was growing up and would sit with my dad and the junkies every evening. And she sort of knew it was happening, but sort of had told herself it wasn't happening. It was sort of drinking almost to kind of numb herself from that. And I really remember I used to go to school and we'd have like show and tell on a Monday. And I'd tell all these like fantastical stories about going to nightclubs and smoking and drinking champagne with aristocrats and models. But you know, some of it was stuff, you know, I'd seen some of this kind of stuff in my sitting room. And then the teachers would say to my mum, she has the most incredible imagination. Where is she getting these stories from? And on the way her mum would be like, you can't tell them, you can't say. So I learned that I wasn't allowed to talk about the stuff that was happening at home and then that kind of happened again when Candy died and I went back to school and no one wanted to talk about her so again I had to pretend that she hadn't you know that, that, that something hadn't happened I had to pretend to be someone else whereas at that point my mom really wasn't pretending you know she was walking around in great grief uh, very explicitly and people because at this point in time we were very bad about talking about grief people would cross the road so that they wouldn't have to talk to her when they saw her and things like that so um so I suppose it was sort of learning about truth and lies from my parents, which is quite a, you know, again, a balancing act. What's the next thing on the pile? The chalet school books. Ah, oh, glorious. And I absolutely loved these when I was small. So I guess to, to think about my childhood and books that really uh, influenced me as a child, the Chalet School and Lord of the Rings were my two favourite books. I was obsessed with both of them. And I think, the and they both in a way impose order on chaos. So the Chalet School, I was just like, this is amazing. Like nothing bad could ever happen to you at the Chalet School. You know, the naughtiest thing you do is have a, a midnight feast. Um, and I loved it. And I imagined this is what school would be like, would be like the Chalet School. So I used to kind of consume these books. Yeah, Chalet School. Have you ever read the Chalet School books? Do you know, my mum is a huge fan. Lots of the people I love adore those books. I've never quite managed to click with them and I really wanted to love them, but I'm always up for having another go. Yeah, I mean, I, I did love them and I just loved the fact that they it also seemed incredibly glamorous and exotic. They spoke a different language every day. That Again, they ate amazing food. I think food is kind of a theme. I always love it when people write about lovely food. Um, and it just seemed this very controlled, safe environment for a child to be in. And I think when I went to secondary school, because I went to this posh secondary school, um, as this kind of overlapped at the, with the point in my life where my mum and dad were clean, we were in a state of relative normality because my dad went into rehab when I was about nine and before Candy died. And so we sort of were a normal family for about four years. And mum did this thing where she took me to all the posh schools to look at them and said, which one do you want to go to? And I chose the school I chose because it had, you know, chemistry labs and everything looked really ordered. And I was like, yes, this is, this is going to be like the chalet school. Um, I'm going to love it. Um, and then I turned up and everyone was wearing DMs and had loads of black eye makeup and sort of multiple piercings. I was like, okay, oh no, crikey. And I think I turned up on the first day looking super neat and tidy, like an A-line skirt, grey socks pulled up to the knees, one of those sort of grey woolen tank tops. And I looked around, I was like, oh no, I'm really uncool. <laughs> no one else looks like this. And I, that night I said to my mum, mum, you have to do my skirt. You have to shorten it, tighten it. I can't wear this top anymore. So I had to kind of reinvent myself because it clearly wasn't chalet school. And that made me quite sad. So I never, I never got to go to the chalet school. I do think it's really interesting how, I think craving, if you can be at home and be bored and crave chaos and disorder because everything is quite ordered you know that's a real luxury and I think lots of yeah. children daydream about how I mean, that's you know presumably why everybody was at school in dms but mm. how difficult it is I think how we kind of try to find identity and find ourselves in books and that was obviously a, a time mm. when you were you know looking for something yes. to I mean, kind of tell you who I you were I was a really bookish child and I continue to be a bookish adult and I kind of because books seem to offer a pathway into a safe place where as you say you know wildness was okay because everything was so safe you know in the famous five or in the secret seven you know there's always food there's always a kind of a warm bed whatever adventures you go on there's always a happy ending and I think I like Lord of the Rings as well because it was like a confined universe like you knew where the, en the edges were you knew who was bad and who was good and it was all really straightforward and I 
I think as a child where everything was so fluid and complicated, you know, I, I went into the sitting room to sit with those junkies partly because I was curious and it seemed fun and interesting to sit with my dad but partly because I was really scared because I knew that they never stubbed out their cigarettes, they never blew out their candles, they'd all pass out. And I just thought the, the house was gonna kind of be set on fire by them. So it was those sort of competing feelings that drew me there. There's tension inside me between order and chaos, I guess. And in those books that, you know, if someone does something wrong, there's a consequence or a resolution. And as you say, there's that consistency. And it's so confusing, I think, that first time you realise that you know, not all actions do have a consequence and sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. That really warps, I think, your core. Mm, yeah, definitely, definitely. So I definitely kind of sought kind of order and constancy in books, which I didn't find at home and continue to do that. So when I went to school, I got really into classics and Latin. I used to love reading kind of Virgil because it seemed to me that these languages could really impose order again on chaos. You know, Latin is a beautiful language. Every single ending tells you the significance of the word. And authors like Virgil with the Aeneid, he's writing about war and death and home, you know, exile, but it's made beautiful because of the words. And so this idea that horror and sadness can be turned into something beautiful by language and poetry was very, a kind of a powerful lesson, I think. And I can, that's what I got from the Aeneid and kind of Latin and things like that uh, when I was at school. Um, and that again, sort of stayed with me. My master's now involves me reading Latin as well. So, so is it a <laughs> master's in classics? It's a master's in cultural, intellectual and visual history, which is um, from about, it's like the medieval to Renaissance. So it's a master's about the transmission of classical language, ideas, philosophy, art into the Renaissance and how they sort of merged and were changed, a sort of transmission and interruption sort of thing. But I read a lot of um, 15th and 16th century Latin for my course, <laughs> which is quite mad and nerdy. I always find it oddly comforting to look at as well I say look at ancient texts that is not something mm. that I do to my shame I think I should but to realize that literature really broadly covers the same themes and I think you know right now you know today especially but in general it's quite it's difficult and painful to look at the world and what's going on in it mm. but then you go back and back and you see that these are the problems we have been talking about and trying to solve for hundreds yeah. and thousands of years. Yeah, there's, you know, there's there's grief and there's loss and there's survival in the kind of the earliest stories. And, you know, particularly at a time of pandemic, you can, there's so much, I mean, especially when I'm at the Warburg, where, where we were still able to go into college, they were getting, I wouldn't say excited, excited is the wrong word, but it was very interesting for them to find themselves again in a position that people in the 15th, 16th century had been, because that's their subject. They're like, oh, this is very interesting, because in Venice in 1592, I think you'll find that blah, blah, blah. It's like, God, so there's always those analogies and parallels that can be found, which, which is about humanity and how unchanging essentially humanity is, I guess, and our responses and our survival techniques. After many, many people on this podcast have urged me to, um, I mm. finally got round to reading the Catholic Chronicles. I'm on the Second oh. one, and we're in the Second World War. And yeah. I think what I love the most about it is it's there's tragedy, but also lots of very personal human tragedy that isn't necessarily to do with the Second World War. And also, mm. as you say, it's that order. And, you know, no matter what's happening with, like, you know, the bombing and getting into the air raid shelters, there are still meals, very regular meals. They yeah, still, still eat tea. better than I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the concession to the war is that the yeah. children and adults all have to have tea in the hall at four o'clock and they can't have two <laughs> sets of servants to have two different tea. Oh, exactly. Well, actually, speaking of the war, so that's actually that's my favourite book. And I read this, I reread this all the time. And I reread it the minute we went into lockdown. I thought I'm just going to have to reread it. And it's The Towers of Trebizond by Rose Macaulay. So The Towers of Trebizond is a beautiful book. And it's written by Rose Macaulay. And it's about a woman who, and I think it's written between the wars, but she wrote it after the Second World War. And she goes on a journey with her aunt Dot around um, the Near East, around Turkey on a camel. And it's about her kind of adventures. But really, it's a sort of uh, 
a love letter to the time between the wars, which is a very nostalgic, but also sad time. And with the book, with the books all written in that period, you kind of, they, they know that the terror of the Second World War is about to come. And it's sort of very funny and silly, and it's about her adventures, but it's also about memory and about grief, because essentially the book is written in a state of grief because she loses someone she loves dearly. Again, she eats amazing meals in amazing places in sort of Turkey, and she goes to ruins, and I love ruins, and she sort of takes drugs in ruins and has visions, which is one of, I, I don't do that, but I kind of think, you know, it's a cool thing to do. <laughs> Uh, and, but it's just a very, and I really love that language. I love that kind of 1950s sort of language, which is quite, it's not prim, but it's quite sort of self-possessed and very intelligent with masses of kind of references. And her style, she kind of flits between now and the distant past with such a kind of ease that it's almost like the gap between now and then has been collapsed. Uh, which I think is really wonderful. And I think that's how memory works because especially, I don't know if you found this, but in lockdown, I definitely found like I had memories, very powerful visual memories just springing up into my head of something that happened 25 years ago, just because there are fewer kind of visual and mental stimuli. So it's just things were sort of bubbling up and, and how that integrates in your head with like you're eating your food and then you remember something that happened and then you remember, you know, and, and this book manages to turn that act of memory into something very fluid and very beautiful and very easeful. Wonderful. Yeah. And I love the idea that time isn't linear, that maybe that's the weird thing that we impose upon it and that the books that we're yeah. drawn to are the ones that don't treat it as such. Yes, that definitely kind of collapse time and just time and memory and, and also the experiences of people for, if you're walking around a ruin, you know, you're walking where people walked 400 years ago and they're they're almost present for you and I think that's really encapsulated in that book very beautifully and realizing as well they weren't walking around thinking you know oh it's it's the 12th century and that's very serious no, no, they were going to be gossiping about you know yeah. romances and thinking about what they were going to have for lunch probably yes exactly what delicious seafood they were going to have for lunch I love that food keeps coming up and I'm wondering whether you are someone who likes food writing and you know sort of read recipe books like their novels I love books that are written about food from like the 1920s or the 1930s and you know the kind of recipes and I love Diana Henry's uh food writing because it's amazing it's very kind of about it's very redolent about place and time and when you had a meal and how meals make you feel and I've got a one of my weird memory ticks is I can really remember what meals I've eaten at what time and I think in my book I write about how like foods and tastes can really bring memory back. So, you know, if I were to eat Angel, my dad, when he was a junkie, the only thing he could eat was like Angel Delight, Pink Angel Delight with Alpen mixed together and he'd have it in this massive bowl. And I mean, I haven't had that for a long time, but to taste that now would be a really strong kind of emotive memory trigger, I think. And ditto things like, um, spaghetti vongole which I always used to have when I was little and which was Candy's favourite food so when you eat that these things really kind of trigger memory but I'm also really greedy and I love cooking so food kind of operates on many levels of happiness for me. Because <laughs> I just thought of that incredible scene from your book where I think it might be Candy's anniversary or her birthday and mm, you all yes, go out and your yes. mum wants you all to have what she would have had and then at the last yeah. minute you sort of you change the order and it feels quite mm. the overwhelm the tension I think between what you want and what feels right and, and how you appropriately grieve and observe someone's memory. Mum did want us to be in a state of open and active grief because she was and she's right you know that's what one I mean we should have been more straightforward about our grief process whereas dad and I were like well dad and then I followed in his sort of lead let's just get hammered let's smoke let's have fun like he was he was a pleasure seeker he lived in the moment he just wanted to have fun the whole time um so grief wasn't something he was willing to engage with at all I mean I really remember that and I remember like the taste of the artichokes and the melted butter and all those things which were so kind of redolent and also I think to do something like that which is to remind yourself of happy times so times when we'd all sat and had that food together and to try and do it when someone's dead is really kind of jarring in a way because 
you're bringing like your body doesn't know what to do with all those sensations it's like this should be happy feelings but it's become so heartbreaking I do love Diana Henry and I often think mm. of the introduction I think it's the introduction of how to eat a peach and she's talking about um yeah. Big, big bowls of salad leaves and how they're being kind of, you know, dried and flung, these sort of huge heavy metal things. When I'm using my terrible plastic salad spinner. I'm always imagining myself somewhere in the Mediterranean with like a heavy basket. Right? Although, <laughs> although my salad spinner is, um, it's more fun than I should really admit. When I lived in Rome between school and university, one day the the one of our, my flatmates she did that she bought some white wine and she cut a peach in it and she put it in the fridge for two hours and then she brought it out and it was the most and i really remember sitting again on a kind of a terrace kind of in rome in a re, on a really hot day drinking that and it was the most incredible powerful kind of sweet delicious thing i'd ever had so i was like yes that is definitely how you eat a peach and loads of white wine on a, somewhere in rome Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We'll be back to Govendra soon, but now I want to tell you about a book I loved that is coming soon, Belladonna by Anabara Salam. It's 1956 in Connecticut, and 15-year-old Bridget is living a life filled with lies. Her wealthy classmates decide who is popular and who, essentially, is happy. She can't let them know what's wrong with her sister or even where her family really come from. When the captivating Isabella arrives, Bridget wonders if she's finally found someone she can be herself with. But after a year in Italy with Isabella, the lies get bigger and harder to hide. This book is heaven. Imagine Anita Bruckner writing The Challenged Mr Ripley and you're close. It's sexy, it's cruelly funny and filled with the sustained claustrophobic tension that defines the very best summer books. Belladonna by Anabara Salam is published by Fig Tree in July. Now back to Govandra. Have you read any Barbara Trepido? Yes, yeah, I love, I've read a lot of Barbara. I read all her books, actually. I went through a real phase of hers. You know when you become very kind of almost addicted to someone's writing? I really loved her books. I thought they were amazing. But she hasn't written anything for ages, has she? She wrote the book about her South African childhood, Frankie and Stanky, which was quite a long time ago. No, I really, I really enjoyed her stuff. But it was a while since I read it, actually. About 15 years I read all her stuff. So just uh, in lockdown, I reread uh, Brother of the More Famous Jack, Seeking mm. Comfort. And um, when Catherine, go, I think she goes to Rome and she has the terrible, mm. terrible boyfriend. And um, and it's funny because I, when I think back about what I remember of that book, the first time I read it, I was so sort of focused on, you know, the Sussex bits and the London bits. And mm. then I was like, oh, I'd totally forgotten that she has this sort of yeah. big trip in the middle. But I found the Italian parts much more resonant this time around and much sadder as well, I think. It's it's really interesting the way when you reread books, you read them differently each time, depending on how old you are and, and where you're at at the time. So, you know, I've now read The Towers of Trevor's like four times. And each time I've read it, I've been 
at a different point and something else has sort of occurred to me or resonated with me. And it is amazing the way that happens. And I reread a lot because I really love rereading and I find a lot of comfort in it. And I, what I often do is if I read a book, and I think this is amazing, I'll just start from the beginning again straight away, which is what I did with Swimming Home by Deborah Levy. Ah. It's a fantastic book, which is completely amazing. And it's about, uh, it's ama- and again, it's like about being on, ho- it's a ho- I think they're in Greece, they're in a holiday home. Um, and so it's very kind of sunny and about holidays, but about sort of a sudden moment of kind of a family getting transformed by the arrival of a new person but her language again is so supple and amazing and she also does that thing of the past and the present sort of rubbing up against each other in a very kind of lyrical and meaningful way that makes you kind of reappraise the present Um, and also this sort of there's a bit in it where the um daughter I think is remembering her a sort of a difficult time at home where there was a lack of love and care and the way that that's written about in a really compressed and intense almost kind of hallucinogenic way I found very kind of moving but also inspiring as well I think I believe he's got the most kind of incredible kind of humanity as well as sort of lyricism in her writing so you got to the end and just went right back round again like staying in the cinema in I loved it so much and I was like oh there's so much because the first time you read something and you sort of gobble it up and then the second time you read it and you're like you kind of can linger over the language a bit more and there's always much more to discover and also if you think about it you know when I wrote my bloody book I'm sorry to swear I I reread it and I wrote it and rewrote it so many times I worked so hard on it and it's a bit like when you make a massive Christmas lunch for people and they eat it in two and a half minutes you're a bit like <laughs> five years it took me to write this book. <laughs> well, you know, three hours it took me to make this Christmas lunch, and it's gone in 20 minutes. And it's not that I'm requesting everyone reread my book, but I suppose sometimes when I read something I love, I'm just like, oh, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to savor it. I'm going to sort of see what they did, kind of try and work out how they made it so brilliant. And I did the same thing with How to Be Both by Ali Smith. And I, I think the one that I got, because I think they're flipped, aren't they? Like some of the books have the Italian bit first and some of the books have the English bit first. So the one that I have has the English bit first. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. And I thought it was so clever, the interplay between the two halves and the themes that ran through it and again it's about kind of death and and being a young woman and adventure and Italy again um, I'd absolutely loved it I thought it was so clever and fantastic but kind of easy you know it's like I love those books that they don't look like they're trying too hard but you can tell that there's sort of great skill and kind of work that has gone into them and I think that's one of those books where it just feels kind of so wonderful and easy but you can tell that she's worked bloody hard at it. And I think that's a book that I've only read it once, but it would benefit from rereading because it is so rich and deep. Yeah. And I know what you mean. The first time I read something, I really gobble it up because I want to know what happens. And then you can yeah. absolutely luxuriate in it more. But I mean, I often find it quite hard to read books that are meant to be the big book of the moment. I'm kind of annoyed that I'm being told that this is the book that you should read right now. So I often kind of wait and save them and try and read them sort of a year later. When I don't know why. Maybe that's just me being sort of annoying and sort of whatever but uh, I yeah I kind of didn't read it when it first came out but then just I also I really love her covers as well is that bad is that sort of shallow to love covers of books? No, I think, really like you know <laughs> it's it's art and someone has taken mm. a lot of time over making that lovely but I do I really love that one because it's and it's so satisfying as well when you because you see it and it's such a sort of fun and evocative image yes and you don't, you know, I was sort of trying to connect it to the book. And then when it comes up, and it's a bit like when they say the name of the film, the film, you're like, yes, I know what that and is. And then immediately you kind of look back to the cover and go, oh my God. And then it becomes so kind of meaningful because she sort of imputes loads of meaning into those women and that moment and that image. So, it, you know, it kind of the whole thing becomes quite sort of multidisciplinary almost. Um, I've mentioned this before. I feel like I say the same five books in this podcast every time, which is... Um, um, I need to book myself, I guess, but um, Kathy Rensenbrink's book, which yes. is coming out in the autumn. I don't know if you've right. uh, seen it yet, so it's all, it's chibi. So there's um, her first book, uh, The Last Act of Love, 
which I read, which is fantastic, which is such a brilliant evocation of sibling grief. And that was definitely, I read that and I read the Justine Piketty book, If the Spirit Moves You, which were two really amazing books about grief, actually. And obviously, of course, this must be the case, but it's, an, I've not read the Justine Piketty and I, I'd love mm. to, but thinking about your book and, and Kathy's book, The Last Act of Love, just how two books that are both memoirs and both about you know grieving siblings and tragedy that they mm. can be so 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 different and so multifaceted and so entirely so mm. you know that you wouldn't think to compare them um, but mm. Kathy's new book is called Dear Reader and it's mm-hmm. sort of a memoir but it's also mm. about her loving books and one of the things she talks about that I found so interesting is that her dad was illiterate and became mm. a very very sort of passionate reader later in life. My dad wasn't really a reader at all, although funnily enough, he became a reader when I gave him the Harry Potter books. I gave him a full set for one Christmas and he absolutely loved them. And he just read them again and again and again and again. Uh, and the only other person I know who did that is Margot Robbie, uh, who, I, did you know this? I interviewed her once. This is a really mad bit of information. I interviewed her once. And uh, she told me she was really into Harry Potter, so much so that she just reads the whole lot and then she starts again at the beginning and reads them all over again. And that's sort of what my dad did. But also Margot Robbie, for her hen night, had a Harry Potter stripper, which was the other... Anyway, that's completely not relevant. But... <laughs> actual Harry, not, not Ron or anything. Okay, it wasn't Harry, it wasn't Daddy Robbie. And I was like, well, you had a 14-year-old boy. <laughs> He just turned up with all like the wand and stuff, you know, with all the accoutrements. My, my, my friends know me so well. And I was like, wow, okay, good. Imagining the Google searching that took to find. <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, she told me. Uh, she'd never told anyone before. And it's one of those things. No, I, I mean to, to Google a Harry Potter stripper. Yeah, to find a Harry Potter stripper. And sometimes when you do interviews and, you know, often especially Hollywood celebrities have really got what they're going to say down. Like they, they kind of know they're just a bit like, and then they say something and you're like, that's the best thing you've said, but you have to keep your face really calm. So like, Harry Potter stripper. Oh, okay, great. And then it goes in the paper and then it's picked up by every single kind of, you know, <laughs> news, news, the kind of thread across the world. It's like the biggest news in the olden days when things like Harry, uh, Margot Robbie having a Harry Potter stripper was news. Uh, yeah. Oh god, but I can imagine having to do that poker face and not not yeah. let on. You've given me gold. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if it has if it's still coming. I think it's due out in July. I don't know if it still is not because of the the Rona. But um, yeah. I really really enjoyed Sophie Hayward's book, The Hungover Games. Um, it's fantastic, and there are lots of good gossipy Hollywood stories. But no, it's, it's not. And I think now as well, you know, anything bright. I think that's what I want yes. from a book, a feeling that it's going to be. Yeah, it's sort of, a, but I think also, I mean, I definitely, and I don't know if you felt this in lockdown, but the kind of, the people who've been in touch with me about the book, um, and I don't know whether it's just because my book's quite short, uh, they've said that they've read it really fast and they've sort of read it in like two sittings or in one sitting. And I think one of the interesting things about the situation we're in now is you can really kind of immerse yourself in a piece writing in a way that perhaps you know had people been commuting to work you kind of you, you sort of you, you kind of fall into a piece of writing in a way that perhaps is harder if we're kind of so busy going about our normal lives um, and whether that makes a difference to how people read stuff if they really just sort of read it in sort of one sitting or two sittings in quite an intense way because I, I did do that with your book I think I read it within 24 hours and I feel that bad <laughs> as you say it's the year of work but then I do I, I read so avidly and addictedly and mm. you know I think that's right that now there are sort of fewer boundaries yeah. and barriers and other things to make myself do and I can just and thank you for your lovely post about the book as well it was so nice it's so kind and especially at this time and it's quite hard I mean you know it's quite hard because we're not doing events and the things that we might normally do to publicize a book it's uh you know all that stuff is so amazing and important so thank you <laughs> like do you think it's really weird isn't it that you see things out in the world and I having written um a few books now mm-hmm. and I'm really surprised that people are still reading 
the first book I wrote for the first time and getting in touch mm. with that because I think it's journalism as well especially now when everything's online and you sort of feel yeah. like well everyone's going to read it and say what they're going to say or not within about two hours of it going up yeah. so it's really <laughs> really lovely to know that books kind of continue to exist yes. I had to do my audio book in the cupboard here at home because obviously I couldn't go into Penguin and record the audio book so I was like this is good I can I can sort of really sort of pin down stuff and also what's weird for me actually with writing the book is especially like it's not that thing everything happened in the order that it happened and everything but the, the way I feel about it is constantly changing um you know the way I feel about my dad changes you know I learn new things about him and I get angry with him or I'm less angry with him um and so it's really weird that my life has been fixed now in this moment. Do you know what I mean? It feels strange because, you know, in 10 years time again, I might feel, you know, have discovered, and also because people get in touch, they said, oh, I remember this happening, or I remember Candy doing this, or this is my memory of you and Candy. And I was like, oh God, those are really amazing, beautiful, resonant memories that if I'd had them when I wrote the book, I might have included, or, you know, I've, I've learned some things about my dad that really irritated me, and it might have changed the way I wrote about him. So it's just really strange that, a memoir isn't like fixed history. It's kind of a fixing of how you feel about something at a moment that you wrote it. Um, so who knows how I'll feel about it in five years' time. So is this people who have known you getting in touch and having yeah, their yeah. memories kind of... Loads of people. Kind yeah, of embroidering. Or yeah, not, not well, embroidering as in inventing, but embroidering as in adding details yeah, that you've missed. Adding detail, kind of adding texture, because, you know, I've got loads of memories, but obviously there are still gaps where Candy's concerned. There's still gaps, you know, because Dad was out and about and doing stuff, not, and I wasn't always there. So, um, but it's, uh, yeah, sort of adding to the, the texture. And I guess I feel like with my memories of Candy, I kind of created the picture and the frame to fill in and that job will continue as I, as long as I live, really, just kind of, you know, talking to more people and more people remembering stuff. And it's sort of, it's an evolving process memory. It's not stuck. Again, we're talking about time and it's sort of slipperiness. It's, it's constantly changing, I think. Do you have any desire to write fiction? Is that something that you're going to do? Yes, I do. And I have a couple of ideas, uh, uh, which I was meant to be getting going with, but, uh, it's been impossible I, I can't write at the moment I can't write I've got two kids at home got downstairs being done I've got my husband uh, you know and it just but yes I do have a couple of projects in mind that I want to work on I do I, I always wanted to write fiction I never kind of set out to write a memoir but I tried and tried and tried to write fiction it was all really terrible so I uh, I'm sure that's so not I, the case <laughs> it was very good so I kind of but you know I was, I was doing it for like 15 years 20 years trying to write fiction and um in addition to you know working and doing everything else and this ended up being the thing you know it, it was like the, it was almost like I had to write this it was the story that kept coming out but in weird ways kind of thing I even tried to write science fiction which is why I've got Ursula Le Guin the dispossessed ah. Which is an amazing book. That's about... a fabulous cover. Um, I'm going to try and cool. describe that with this being an oral medium, and I'm not sure if I can. It's sort of an amazing, bright so it's, blue, it's cloudy of, sky. Yeah, this, this, he's on a he's on a, a, a kind of another planet. He's this quite handsome, almost kind of Clint Eastwoody looking guy uh, with a, in a spacesuit, and above him is a sort of like a bubbly type space aircraft that looks a bit like a kind of something from Pokemon. Um, but this is an amazing book about Earth and then another little planet attached to Earth or two kind of, not this Earth and, and another little planet. And on that planet, it's really hard to live. So people have like a scraper living and they create this almost like um, Israeli kibbutz kind of shared communist life up there, which is sort of very simple, very beautiful, like children are shared, food is shared, you, people have no possessions, they go and work where they're meant to go and work, and um, they, but they have to get some of their kind of goods from the main earth that they are a satellite to, uh, which is much more kind of decadent and capitalist. Um, and it's about the story of a scientist, who's the Clint Eastwood chap, going down to the kind of the decadent earth and this kind of experience of kind of cultural difference and almost what's the right way to live, you know, it's, it's kind of communism versus capitalism, which, you know, Ursula Le Guin is an incredible writer. And when she does 
science fiction it is so it's layered with meaning and kind of ways of understanding ourselves uh, so it's wonderful it's a really wonderful book and very beautiful as well and kind of stark like the bits in the kind of the planet where it's quite stark and very stark and then the bits in the decadent planet all the kind of the women are all kind of bald but covered in amazing jewelry and makeup and they all have their tits out and stuff and it's all just very kind of bonkers <laughs> wow that sounds very timely it's um making me think of the hunger games when they all go into Gosh, what's it? The, is it the main district? Like it's been a long time since I read that. In the Hunger Games, then they all go and have like they get plastic surgery and stuff, and to make themselves look kind of extra swanky. I think so. I sort of I imagine it's kind of like Avatar, but madder. Uh, so that's a wonderful book. But yeah, so I did uh, mm-hmm. in my. 15 to 20 years of trying to write fiction, tried to write science fiction, but that is not now. I've, I'm leaving science fiction. I think you know. I'm going to do something else. But as I say, I don't know when I'm going to be able to start doing it. Yeah, there's there's definitely kind of space in my brain. For it. It's what I always wanted to do. And I love I love writing. And also, I think, I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to do my master's as well, because after 20 years working as a journalist, you're just like splurging information out of your brain. You're just like a conduit for, you know, stuff. And I just wanted to put stuff back in it. Um, and then I think that process, which I'm kind of, you know, I've got an essay to hand in on Monday about, Islamic alchemy in the ninth century uh, so you know I've got to, I'm going to put a lot of stuff into my head and then I will work out what's going to come out of it next but that might take a you know a little while. <laughs> Does academic writing feel different from other writing do you enjoy it more yeah. or do you still feel the stress of the deadline? No academic I went back to do my master's degree and I was like okay I'm going to be in a room full of uh 22 year olds who've just left university who are going to be so far ahead of me you know I haven't read an academic book in 20 years I'm going to be quite this is going to be quite tough for me but at least I can write I thought at least I can write you know first piece of written work I handed in they said this is terrible you have to go and see the writing advisor and I was like are you kidding <laughs> job <laughs> I had to go to the academic writing advisor they're like you're just your writing stuff you know it was far too jaunty and it was and it had like a narrative and those things are not allowed in academic writing so um, I mean they are a bit but they have to be really tempered you know my husband did a master's in Milton and when I showed him my piece of writing he laughed he said you can't say that this 16th century poem was hotly anticipated by the Pope <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Okay. So, um, so it took a while to get my brain into academic writing, but now I think I can do it. So I did my first 4,000 word essay and it was kind of okay. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, uh, definitely more thinking is involved than journalism. It's a, it's sort of, uh, it's just a different, I didn't realize it's just a completely different medium and it really is. So, but I think I can now sort of do it, but I don't, I'm not going to try and write any academic books, certainly. I think I shall leave that to the people. Oh, but I was hotly anticipating them. Yeah, Yeah. hotly anticipated. (laughs) 16th century neo-Latin poem. No, that didn't didn't go down so well. Uh, But yes, it's, uh, it's, but I kind of like, it's like just a, it's like, just finding another, trying to learn a new skill is really satisfying, I think. And it's enjoyable, um, although I still haven't worked out how to use the printer and things like that. Like, it's all very... Uh, all the kids are really good with all the tech stuff and I'm just like oh god <laughs> <laughs> what happened to index cards you know oh I mean you'd think you know sort of studying things that were sort of happening in the 16th century yeah. that the tech wouldn't matter but it doesn't really but I mean they they seem to be I think these things like accrete around so there's like kind of terrifyingly complicated bibliographical systems that you can download onto your computer I'm like but why I'll just write a list and a book it'll be fine you know so yeah what are you most excited about reading next oh I can't remember what he's called, Daniel Lehman. It's called Till, T-Y-L-L. And it's about, again, it's about a 16th century kind of German comic figure. But it's written recently. It's not written ages ago. So I'm really, and that came out quite recently. And I'm really excited about reading that. And I think Deborah Levy has a new book coming out. And I love everything she writes. I'm super excited about the new Deborah Levy book coming out. Um, So... I guess those two things. Perfect. There's lots to look forward to. I'm very curious about yes. that Daniel Lima one because again, I haven't read it, but yeah, I haven't either. It's there. It's now. I bought it the other day from my local indie bookshop, which is now he's able now to sell books. Like he opens his door and he has like a little sort of <laughs> little a bookseller crow in Crystal Palace with a little, little desk, and you can sort of do it in a socially distanced way. And I also with him managed to sign a few copies of the book because I didn't sign any copies of the book. 
and you know all those things that you imagine doing when you publish a book because that's such a milestone isn't it and the one thing you think well I'm allowed to imagine how that will be I wanted to have that photo that they all have of them sitting in the warehouse like beaming next to all the books and then put that on Twitter and be like look I just signed my books but no that never happened so in the end I just wandered up there the other day and signed five copies that he's got and those are the only copy side copies out there well you'll have to do it for the paperback yours yes exactly exactly so we didn't talk about lace i feel bad i feel like i've been really boring and serious but (laughs) (laughs) but i did love lace it was an amazing book and i think that was my sexual adventure but i was like "Hmm, 12 13 and it wasn't just it wasn't just the goldfish it was also my i think the best line in all fiction is which one of you bitches is my mother where did you get your copy was it someone at school or i think my mum had it we had yeah my mum had it at home and um she was quite into kind of Shirley Conran and all that kind of stuff and Jackie Collins and I just loved it I thought it was so, and, but we did definitely pass copies between us and we did all together read the goldfish scene uh it's a kind of a group activity <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> and then also there was the fantastic uh, film version of it which I've tried to find on kind of Netflix and Amazon Prime and can't find it anywhere I might have to buy it on DVD because that would make some Brilliant, good, mad lockdown viewing. I know, yeah, to re-watch Lace would be, you know, perfect for a bored Sunday evening. Huge thanks to Govendra. The Consequences of Love is published by Michael Joseph and it's out now. I could not recommend it harder. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for listening. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Follow us on social media at WhyBooked. Hope you're all keeping as safe and sane and well and cheerful as possible. Please keep reading and I'll see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.